Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome to a brand new bonus episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. This is our first ever time releasing a bonus episode, which I'm really excited about, an opportunity to go a little bit deeper, plus it gives you another touch point of this podcast in the week. Today, we are continuing the conversation on inclusion, equity, diversity with Susana Barkataki. We're going to go a little bit deeper into cultural appropriation. This is a conversation that started for me a couple of years ago, but we have come such a long way since then, both me inside of myself and all of us collectively as a community. In this episode, I talk a little bit more about the realizations that I have had and changes I have made, both in my own life and my own practice and in my business. Continuing this really important conversation on how we can honor culture and tradition in yoga is so important. Susanna shares with us how to really come into your own power by embracing the history of yoga on a much deeper level. We also talk about how creativity actually is the solution for cultural appropriation and how you can use your power to uplift others instead of causing harm. And guess what? Susanna's book, Embracing Yoga's Roots, is out today. Be sure to catch it at embraceyogasrootsbook.com. Let's begin. Hi, welcome to the show. So great to be here with you, Rachel. It's so good to see you. I feel like I see you a little bit all the time. <laughs> but it's true now. Yeah, it is true now. We connect a lot. So it's been a while. You were on the show. I had to look it up because it was a while ago. It was almost exactly two years ago that you were wow. on the show for the first time, which means we've known each other now two years. It feels so like much. no time and low time. A long time. Yeah. Yes. So the name of this show, as you know, you know, it's the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. So I always like to start there, just, you know, speaking totally from the heart in this moment today, right now. How, how are you doing? In this moment, I'm really joyful. 
despite all of the things happening in the country that I live in and the world, you know, the sun is shining. There's a butterfly fluttering by out my window and I got to walk in the fresh, cool breeze, which for someone who lives in Orlando, Florida, where it's very hot most of the time, is, is such a joy. And so I'm, I'm feeling really connected and grateful and also really grateful to be having this conversation and be here with you and for the evolution that's happened from where we started this conversation, you and I, two years ago. I was contemplating that this morning just before jumping on to talk to you, just how much has changed, mm. I mean, in the world around us, but also within me and my practice and my teaching just since I got the challenging blessing to connect with you in the first place, <laughs> which I want to talk about on this show as well. But I know you love to start these kinds of um, moments of connection with a little bit of grounding or a bit of meditation. Would you like to guide us? I would love to. It's my favorite thing. So for folks who are listening, what I'm doing is reaching for a singing bowl. And this bowl is from the 17th century in Nepal as a gift and it was handcrafted, and I received it uh, from my partner, who we also traveled through the Himalayas and spent time with monks, nuns, and different sannyasis meditating, where they use the bell. They use the bell to remind us to come back to our home, to ourselves. And so I'm going to invite the bell three times and guide us just in a brief drop-in to coming back to our home, our home within. Take a deep breath in and out. And for everyone gathered for you, I invite you to turn your awareness into your heart right here and now. And sometimes I like to place a hand on my heart or both hands over my heart. And in this moment, call to mind something that you're grateful for from yoga. Maybe it's your yoga asana practice. Maybe it's the deep breaths that you took and didn't get into an argument. Maybe it was following some yoga ethics that helped you feel a little more peaceful or a little more joyful. Maybe it's your intention to practice later today or now as we're together. Take a moment to really feel some gratitude for yoga. 
and to acknowledge this practice that has come down to us from teacher to student that has been practiced for thousands of years and comes from the subcontinent of India where practitioners were sitting under trees by streams at the foot of mountains or in caves and who, like you and I, were simply seeking freedom from suffering, more joy, more peace, liberation. And so take a moment to feel grateful and honor these early practitioners without whom we wouldn't have the practice today. And then we'll come forward in time, thousands of years, back to us right here and now. And take a moment to thank yourself for being here, right here, listening to this conversation, having this conversation, and also right here at this point in your life and all the things that have brought you here. This is the yoga. This is the practice, being present with it all. And let's take one breath together. Slowly shift wherever you are, coming back into the space that you're in, looking around at shapes and colors, and coming back present, perhaps leaving, you know, part of your attention inwards as we talk, inwards on your your inner state, and a part of it outwards, always practicing. Thank Mm. you. Thank you for that. I feel like I dropped seven layers deeper into myself just <laughs> just just now it's so beautiful and it never ceases to amaze me just how how this practice works especially when i think like like you and me we spend all of our day in in conversations around the practice or teaching or in practice it's a a part of of our day to day sometimes i forget you know and it takes just that that 2 minutes and like oh, okay thank you i'm back i'm back does it does it surprise you still parts of this practice it always does I yeah absolutely you know that some days I feel like I haven't practiced at all and then I I just take a moment like three breaths before I eat my lunch you know like you I have a child I have a seven now eight-year-old and so he just turned eight that's why I I forgot all the best for a second (laughs) but you know, there's so many things happening, but when I take a moment and I just pause and I look at him and I really connect, or when I take a few breaths outside in the day, or, you know, I actually have a chance to get on my mat or meditate, I am astounded at how impactful it is for me and also how impactful the practice is whenever I get to share it. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. 
Osea's Skin and Body Care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with our signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. So for anyone listening, you know, we recorded a podcast two years ago. In my world, I have been having these conversations for two years. Something that started off as a very challenging moment in my life that I thought was uh, something that was happening to me. I thought the world was suddenly being unfair or I was being judged for all, all these things that I wasn't doing. And, and it was two years ago and I was called out for culturally appropriating yoga and Hinduism and, uh, and, and Indian and South, South Asian culture. And I had never had that come my way before. And I was, I was really thinking about that this morning, just that moment. I, I was traveling from somewhere. I was at an airport. And I remember there was this social media storm that came my way. And the feeling at the time was like, this is the worst thing that could possibly come my way. None of this is true. I was in this very defensive place. I would never culturally appropriate you know, a practice that I, I center my whole life around that I love so much that I dedicated my life to, you know, who are these people throwing these lies around attacking me in this way? Like that was my big, and I can say that now smiling because <laughs> a lot has shifted since that time. And I've learned a lot since that time. And when you were guiding us through the meditation just now, what came to mind for me or to heart that I feel really grateful for is my self-study which is a part of uh, a part of yoga that I that was really re-inspired and reignited for me through that, which was for me a personally challenging time that that has gifted me so much and opened so many doors and, and my heart and in so many different ways. So for anyone who maybe wasn't present then, because two years is a long time, you know, this podcast has also grown a ton since then. How did you get into this field of work? Like, how did this become the topic that you spend a lot of your day immersed in? I think about this a lot. You know, in a way that this field and this topic, I didn't choose it. It chose me because my father is from India and my mother is British. And I was born at a time when that didn't happen. You know, it just really wasn't. You know, now I think... And hopefully for the future and for my own children, it's like that. this is the way the world is going, not caring so much. That's the vision, right? But the reality of what I was born into was 
a lot of separation. Like parents who said, parents of my parents who said, you'll have to adopt, you'll have half-breeds, we're not coming to the wedding, you know, those types of, of things were just normal. And there was a lot of separation. You know, I say that word because I think it's helpful in the context of yoga to think about what are the places or the spots of separation in our lives. And for me, the biggest place of separation at first was kind of external. It was like people saying, you don't belong or we don't want you in various ways. There were fire bombings that happened in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in England. And so of mixed race families and of Indian and Pakistani families. And so my life was really shaped by separation and by racism. And all of that came from, you know, it came from somewhere, but, but I didn't know that as a child. What I just knew is, wow, there's people who don't like me just because of what I look like or who I am or my name, my last name, you know, and my culture. And so we moved to the United States to escape all that thinking, oh, we're moving to the great, what, what was the metaphor back then? I think it was like the melting pot. And we thought we're moving to this diverse place, Los Angeles, where we'll be welcomed and where, you know, the, everything will, will, will be accepted. But we found that even in LA, we were still discriminated against. My brother and I were called names. We had to fight, physically fight. So I grew up like fighting externally, like you're going to call me a terrorist or make me be the bad guy. Okay, I'm going to fight back. But the thing was, it all went inside. And so there was the second separation was internally. I believed I wasn't as good. I wasn't worthy. And I think so many people, probably people listening, can relate to this, right? Because these are universal themes, even though this is my particular story, not belonging, feeling not accepted, and then feeling divided in oneself. We can have those things for many different reasons. And mine was was cultural and racial because of racial discrimination. And so, you know, all this was like destined, I think, to happen before I even was conscious. It was kind of happening to me. But where I sought agency was I had grown up, you know, going to temple, wearing like if we had a puja, I'd have like a bindi, like a dot, you know, a, a demarcation of a spiritual ritual on my forehead and then be out in public and be made fun of for it. But it was part of my culture, being taught meditation practicing not so much yoga asana, but yoga ethics were just a part of the folk knowledge and kind of the passed down knowledge of my family uh, that I grew up with, Indian side, the Indian family. And, and so when I realized how disconnected I was from myself, it took me a little while, but, and it happened, I think, over a decade of svadhyaya, self-study, but I really realize like the very thing I'm being made fun of for and put down for, I'm going to go into that and learn about that and understand that as an act of self-sustenance, as an act of reclaiming. And so I didn't know that yoga was going to do all of this, you know, be so impactful, but I knew that I had to do something. And so I began to study yoga and Ayurveda more formally. And through that process, you know, learn to mend the separation internally and also at the same time work on mending those separations externally. So doing like 
anti-racism work, social justice, you know, social service work as a teacher. So it was all intertwined for me, the work of the yoga within and the, and the yoga without. It's a big story. Mm. And I, and I for, for so many people I know who are listening now, have a story of their own where yoga helped me heal. Yes. You know, yoga helped me come back to myself or mend that separation. But I think a lot of people listening to this podcast don't have that same cultural background and history that you do where yoga was something that you turned to not because there was a studio down the street or you saw it on Instagram or something like that or heard a podcast or however it came your way, but it's part of your roots. Right. And I think that maybe I just want to say, like when you were talking about feeling the challenge you got two years ago and feeling so hurt and like, I would never do that. And that's not me. I was smiling a little in part because yes, you're, you're in a very different place. And I think in general, the conversation is, but that experience is what I grew like was my whole life, right? That experience of being kind of critiqued, attacked, put down, being told I was doing something wrong just for being. And and I think there are many other Desis, South Asians, who Desi means South Asians who live in the diaspora. So people from India who live in other places like I do in the United States. There are many other folks who this tradition comes from, you know, and who maybe grew up with it or didn't, but they might feel kind of frustrated because they've been moved out of a place where they can speak on something that's like part of their way of life. And so there, I think there can be a lot of, mm, what's the word? Like the uh, an anger for one, grief for another. And then also for people who are being kind of called into this new awakening or new understanding that there's more to yoga than they maybe realized. And also more culturally to yoga that it's like, oh, it's new for me, but this is like an old story for someone else and perhaps a tender story. And I think that move to global empathy and understanding is actually part of what yoga is here for. You know, it's here to bring us to that, which is so needed right now. So needed. So what was that process like for you? I mean, choosing to to begin teaching. I I don't know really how that, I don't think you've ever told me that story, Mm -hmm. that transition. Was there a moment where you realized that, okay, there is so much around that just isn't specifically in the yoga world that isn't just, or maybe that isn't reflecting the values of what we are actually practicing here in this part of the world. And how did that come about you? Because you have a very niched, I mean, you know, I I look at you, not just, I don't want to say just a yoga teacher, but I feel you are in your calling in a, in a, at least it looks that way from the outside in a big way with a fierce Mm -hmm. voice and that, that I think so many people are finding now for the first time. So how did you end up here? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, for folks listening to, I am like, the, first of all, super normal, like short, shy. Like I'm just like a kind of a little normal brown girl, right? Like that's how I see myself. So it's so funny when people are like, you're in your power and your purpose. And I'm that too. And I think I think they're both true. And I say that because... I'm not super exceptional, I think, in any major way other than I've turned into the very things that I needed to heal and then like write about them, speak about them, teach about them. And and so what happened for me actually was I went to India. So my context is is somewhat different. 
everyone, I think, in the diaspora, Daisies, South Asians, like we all have different relationship with, with India and th- we're not a monolith, right? So I don't speak for all South Asians by any means. I don't speak for all Daisies by any means. People will have different perspectives. But my life experience was I grew up with Bengali and Assamese aunts and uncles in the United States who also emigrated here, my father, who's Assamese. And this is a region of, of India and has its own language and different cultural elements. And they did not raise me. Well, my dad didn't really raise me to, that's a good way of putting it. He just wanted us to survive. And so to survive means like be as quote American as possible, which really means as white as possible. And yet my wider family really embraced our culture. And so I was also, there's this saying, ABCD, any born confused Daisy, right? I was definitely somewhat confused. Like, who am I? Where do I belong? All those questions were coming internally as well. And so I saved up money to go to India and I bought a one-way ticket uh, because I knew I wanted to be there long enough to go through the crap, you know, like to have a hard time, to have the breakdowns, to have the, you know, this is so challenging and that I would stay. I was, I was really intending to not go as a tourist, but to go as, as family and as someone committed. And in that journey, I met my teacher, which is another story, which we can talk about, but my teacher Shankarji and I was volunteering at a school He was teaching yoga philosophy mostly. And I learned from him for about a year. And then I came back, worked a little more, saved up and went back and studied with him again. And he said to me that second time, you know, Susanna, you need your job is when you go back this this time, you need to take what we're doing here. And what he was doing was teaching yoga philosophy to the most disempowered, like Dalit folks, villagers who didn't have a lot of resources in in Bihar, where I was learning with him, you need to do what I'm doing in your world, in the United States. And so you need to take yoga, like the full expanse of what yoga is, not that silly stuff that they do in the studios, he said, you know, or I see on TV. You need to take this and share it to those who most need it. And so he had suggested that and planted that seed. At that time, I was a teacher of high school students, but I wasn't teaching yoga. And I I thought, no, no, you know, I never intended to be a yoga teacher, more of I've always loved being a student of yoga. But I came back and I slowly started to teach my students yoga asana, but also yoga philosophy. I'd weave it in. And then friends started to ask, hey, what are you doing? Can you teach us this? And people, you know, I think, And folks listening might have this too. It's like there's a taste of something more when we practice yoga asana. Even if we come in that door through a very physical practice, there's a taste of, oh, there's more to this than just like physical attainment. There's something else. There's some peace, some fire, some even some like spiritual connection sometimes for people. So people began to ask, will you teach me? Will you teach me? And I, so that was what in in a way got me to start teaching yoga teacher trainings because I wanted to teach a more authentic uh, way of practicing yoga and get into yoga philosophy and share the other seven limbs, not, not just asana. It was, I think, kind of 
again, destined to happen, not something I went into it intending to do, but more it just emerged. And I've been so grateful. I love doing it. It's my passion and my joy. It's so much fun to teach, whether it's three people or 30 or however many. Or a lot lately. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) What, What was your experience then, you know, having that transition from coming back from India with this I guess, initiation to teach the, 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 the true heart of the practice. What was your experience in the beginning? And I guess also now doing that in the U.S., in the West, were you teaching mainly white people or were you teaching within, your, within the Indian community there or was it a mix of whoever came your way? You know, honestly, at first, it was like no one really... Uh, it was hard because no one cared that I had sat with a, a teacher who'd meditated for 10 years, you know, in a, in a hut. No one really cared that I'd done like half a year of my own personal silent sadhana. You know, it just, they didn't, people didn't have a context for what an expanded understanding of, of yoga was. Meaning what? Did you, did you show up in places and they asked you for your 200 hour or like yeah, how? Yeah, they asked me for my 200 hour. They asked me like if I didn't say any of the big, you know, name yoga teachers in. You didn't Black learn Earth. from core power yoga? All right. How, how are you going to teach? Okay. <laughs> That's right. So it was frustrating. It it was confusing and frustrating. And like many other, I think, folks who don't fit a kind of normative ideal, I actually didn't feel like I fit in in yoga studios or yoga spaces. And, And so I did what I normally do, which is like, okay, well, let's find an alternative. Let's find a warehouse or an art gallery and hold space here. And so it was small. But initially, I'm just trying to remember, I you know, and I think this is some of like who I am because I am mixed, right? So I can understand all different. I try to also understand all different experiences. And so it seems that often I get a mixture of folks. So I'd say it's about half white, about half folks of color. One of my earliest yoga teacher trainings was just for folks of color and was for mostly South Asian folks, other Desi folks, because it is sometimes I think really nice to have that safe space to speak to one another and to be able to explore the pain of being erased in our own cultural heritage. And so I tried different things. I I really love teaching all groups of people and it slowly grew. And yet I still wasn't experiencing any kind of like mainstream acknowledgement. That didn't happen until a lot later because this was around 2006. Seven, eight, nine, ten. So, yeah, it was a lot later. Around 2015, I wrote an article called How to Decolonize Your Yoga Practice in a fit of frustration. I was so frustrated. I had just come back from a puja that was full, you know, yoga puja and was really, really beautiful. And then I saw some new yoga festival or conference and it was all white people. And I was like, ah. Really? Like I had been so excited. It was like International Yoga Festival. And then I looked at it and I thought, for sure, they'll have people from many different places, including India, where yoga is from. And there and there weren't. And so in that moment, I just penned off this like cry from my heart of like, this is we're we're diluting the tradition. Like we're missing 
all of what's available. And at that time, you know, no one was really, like I had 50 people on my blog list that were mostly my friends. And I get them right, right back from my mom. Nice blog, Susanna. Or my, <laughs> what, you know, this doesn't sound like you, Susanna. Like it was great training. I'd been blogging for a year consistently. And then I sent this off midweek, not on the official blog schedule. And I had like the next day had 150 shares. People who'd never known me were sharing my words because it resonated. And so that kind of catapulted me into the space of not just teaching yoga philosophy, but bringing my experience of talking about race and race equity and, and all those issues of belonging and not belonging kind of together. So... Yeah. That's how how I found you. <laughs> also, thanks to that, thanks to that article. I can't remember if it was shared. I was doing a lot of googling at the time as well because this was, which I find a little bit strange now. This wasn't conversations that were being had in the yoga teacher trainings that I had taken in my life. For no. instance, it wasn't something that was ever bridged from any of my teachers down to to a group or to a class. So for anyone listening who wasn't there then, I mean, this is this is a, a while ago, I was very publicly in like a public wave of, of, of a lot of anger and frustration, all very valid, accused of cultural appropriation with all right, which I can say now and be like, okay, and that is not the worst thing in the world to be accused of. It felt like it at the time, like this is a, the you know, like someone calling me a racist or saying I have engaged in in racist behavior or I am culturally appropriating this practice. It felt like this is a personal attack and it's the end of the world. And then realizing, you know, of course, after that, that that the worse, much worse, incomparable end to be on is to be on the end of receiving harm and having your culture appropriated for so many years and being on the receiving end of all of this harm from this white-centered, white supremacist structure that we live in. Like, that is a big deal. That is the end of the world. Like, that is mm-hmm. messed up and not okay. And then me sitting on the other end of Instagram having, like, a, a challenging week, not so bad. But it felt very, very bad, I think, mainly because I was so... I had to Google these terms, you know, really had to sit down and I don't know what this means, but if, but it's coming off very intense and harsh and angry. So I was like, hands up, this is bad. I didn't do anything wrong, you know. And uh, this was also questions that came in now. I had, a, I had, to, I had to write it down as it was, because I asked social media for some questions for this conversation. And someone wrote, as a white girl from Lidinga, Sweden, Lidinga, Sweden is a very, like an affluent, it's, it's like a nice part of outside of Stockholm. As a white girl from Lidinga, Sweden, why should you of all people be lecturing us about cultural appropriation? And I wrote it down because my answer to that is, that's a great question. Like, that is really... <laughs> <laughs> really good question and and for me to answer as well as a white able-bodied person with millions of followers across across different platforms teaching yoga the fact that i wasn't having this conversation before that i think is a is 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 one of the bigger issues and i'm really glad now that i got to have this eye opening you know this eye opening experience that i realized now is not about me you know, as a person or me not, you know, being a bad person or me, you know, doing something that I should go hide under a rock for rather than it being an initiation to learn and to grow, which can only help me and my personal practice, me as a teacher, and then hopefully, you know, this whole entire community and the the world as a whole. 
We saw it this year with Black Lives Matter, with how uncomfortable it, it was for everyone. And it's, you can't compare it to the discomfort of, of being black in America today. You know, it's, it's just mm -hmm. shifting, shifting the focus too much on, on, on us as, as, as white people in this sense. So I remember reading that article from you going, whoa, wait a minute. Are these what these people are telling me? Is it true? And I had to start really questioning, you know, how am I sharing this practice? How did I learn this practice? Who did I learn this practice from? And of course, after evaluating, I have at the time had zero people mm -hmm. from South Asian or Indian descent as, as my teachers. There was someone, you know, way up there who learned from someone who learned from someone. But it was so, so many people in the in-between that that it's it's all really been lost. So how, I guess the question is, you know, do we go about changing this when I know the majority of people listening right now probably did learn yoga from a white person if they're listening and they're from the US or, or certain parts of, of Europe and they're questioning now, you know, how did I learn this? Is this the right way? Should I just stop altogether? Should we put all the yoga down, walk away? You know, this is bad territory. How do we go about this big, big, big issue? Because it is so vast. Yes. And first, you know, I love what you said in one way, this, that ish, that accusation of cultural, cultural appropriation wasn't personal, but then it also is people's personal responsibility. And so I think for people listening, you know, sometimes I think we get stuck because we're like, I've had so much inner transformation that I feel like this practice is mine right? And it's mine to do what I want with. But just because you've experienced transformation from it and benefit from yoga doesn't mean yoga is yours to do whatever you want with it. And I think that understanding first is so important. It's kind of studentship and humility. So just because we've experienced personal transformation with yoga doesn't mean that it's ours to do whatever we want with it. Because there's a way that we can be in humility, be humble students, and really like learn to be stewards of a tradition rather than like owners and controllers of it. And so if we break this down a little bit, we're pointing at systems of power. And that's why, you know, let's just be really personal and transparent, right? That's why in our relationship, there's a dynamic where As an Indian person, for me, I've experienced marginalization, not being centered, not, you know, getting to speak, teach, practice in any kind of like uplifted way for the first decade and a half that I was teaching. Whereas you, Rachel, like being societally put in a position of power, right, more centered, able-bodied, white, flexible, all those things were centered. And, and so... That doesn't mean anything about you particularly as a person or me particularly as a person. But when we look at it systemically, there is a huge issue there. And so what I try to do is look at, well, in this relationship, where is there a power imbalance? And if I am in a position of disprivilege, how can I invite those other people who may have more privilege or power than I to help lift me and other people like me Up. And if I'm in a position of power, of privilege, more centered, how can I lift up others? And this is part of yoga, right? This is part of working with 
Shakti with working with the inner power that yoga cultivates. And at first we might feel like, like you first felt like a little bit put off or like, why do I need to do that? That doesn't make sense. Like I'm just out here for my own benefit. But actually the first yama, the first ethical precept of yoga is ahimsa, it is working for non-harm ourselves with others and then in our social context. So all of those reasons are, you know, within the context of yoga itself, within the structure of yoga itself, is really the answer to your question. Like, what can I do? What should I do? Well, I would say go and go deep into the practice. Go deep, especially into yoga ethics, into the yamas and niyamas, and learn those, study those, practice those, and then begin to act from this place of balancing power. You know, cultural appropriation really only can occur when there's a, a differential in power. Like some, I'm holding my hands for people who can't see me, one hand up and one hand below the, the, the top hand. That it, cultural appropriation doesn't happen when two equals are sitting at a table sharing food, you know, from different cultures. That's not appropriation. That's sharing. That's that's co-creation, collaboration. But when one group is above and the other group is below, that is those are the conditions in which cultural appropriation or racism or, you know, structural harm can happen. And so when we do an analysis of those social issues, which for some people, it might be new, right? And we get that and that's okay. But just because it's new doesn't mean you get to jump out and say, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? It's new and hey, this can be the exploration. This is part of Svadhyaya, the self-exploration now. And then work on balancing that power. And then once you've kind of worked on balancing that power, the second criteria for cultural appropriation is harm, himsa in Sanskrit. And so then what do we do to solve it? Well, ahimsa. And I can go into a couple specific ways how to practice ahimsa in this context, but but that would be the general first step really is, is the yamas. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. And I, I think a big, big part of this is people not Either, either not acknowledging the harm or maybe even, which is where I was a few years ago, not actually knowing or understanding that there was mm -hmm. harm involved. Yes. So, and, and I think this is where we as, as, as teachers really play a huge, huge, huge role. If one of the teachers that I had practiced with prior, you know, in my whole, my whole history of yoga would have had this mm -hmm. conversation with a class 
that would have been enough, you know, to spark that conversation. Or I guess even me seeking out an Indian teacher that maybe would have that perspective and, and, and be able to share that perspective with me would have made all the difference. But because, and I don't know if this is like, if it's part of, of whiteness, having those little blinders on, like it's more comfortable for me to exist in the space where I don't have to think so much about the mar more marginalized people, or I don't have to focus on my privilege so much because I also had traumas. And, you know, it's that kind of story that I think white folks tell themselves and that I told myself for a long time that I had a hard life too, you know? Mm. So, so aren't we all one? Isn't it all? Why should we focus on race and things like that? And yoga is meant to be shared. And what I realized then after, after recognizing that there is harm involved and, and, and of course that having to come from a very intense place, I think if it wasn't for that wave that I, of, of, of what I perceived as anger, as this is unfair to me, you know, like all, all of this, I probably wouldn't have listened if it was a well-meaning little comment saying, Hey, by the way, um, mm. so some examples of some things that I was doing and, and taking part in actively that, that I have since stopped that I know now were, were inappropriate is we had in our studio, for instance, we had things for sale in our boutique that related to Hindu culture, that related to religion, that related to very specific ancient sacred practices that we didn't really know what to do with, or we didn't really know what they actually genuinely were for. Or maybe I knew what they were for, but for the people who were selling them in the boutique didn't. Things like, well, what did we sell? I have to take a beat to remember. We sold dream catchers at the time, so not relating to, to Indian culture, but Native American culture we would sell because that was something that all the little, you know, hippie dippies, everyone wants to buy a dream catcher, right? We sold incense holders with different religious symbols on them mm -hmm. without really knowing exactly what they were. We had a clothing brand that had different variations of Namaste, a very famous mm -hmm. one that they're still around today. Little things where we just weren't aware that, hey, this is problematic. And what, what I think I shrugged my shoulders at at the time, you know, but people want to buy this stuff. And isn't this all yoga actually trickles down to a lot of harm in the end and comes yeah. from that place of harm and not knowing, or I guess not having that conversation or closing your eyes to the conversations means you are going to be more likely to continue that harm or pass that harm on as a, as a white person. And I'm sharing this in a sense of anyone listening who is a, a, a yoga teacher and white, you know, how, why should I listen to this? Or, you know, do I even play a role? And, and the answer to that, I really think is yes. Yes. And what's so powerful is, you know, in my life experience, I worked, part of how I've come to do what I do is I grew up with Patrice Cullors, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and a number of other activists, Mark Anthony Johnson, who founded Dignity and Power Now, Claire Fox, who does food justice work in Los Angeles. But we were intentionally a multicultural group. So some of us were Black, some of us were queer, some of us were trans, some of us were Indian, some of us were Asian, some of us were white, right? We were intentionally multicultural, working on, well, how do we navigate these systems and issues of power and how can, when we have power, how can we uplift those who don't? And when we need uplifting, how can we turn to our friends and allies and be like, like I could write to you or, or call you and be like, Hey, Rachel, this thing is going down. It's a, a white yoga, whatever, you know, say yoga is teacher training and, and they're not understanding what I'm saying. Would you be willing to step in and have a chat with them? And in this context, 
we did that for one another. And it's so effective because sometimes those who, like you said, you know, they're just kind of people in positions of power don't want to see their privilege. Privilege by its very nature makes us miss things about a situation. And and I, you know, can speak to that even around, say, caste privilege, because as a as a higher caste Indian person, there are things that I am continuing to learn and open my eyes to around disprivileges that Dalit folks or folks who don't have caste privilege experience, right? So there's all there's things that we miss and there's things that we need to work on. But for you or for someone listening who's like, oh I, wow, I have privilege please don't stop in guilt, right? Because it actually isn't productive. Guilt is not a productive emotion. And I'm not inviting anyone to stay stuck in guilt or to tell you you're wrong or bad or have done anything wrong. That's not helpful. What's helpful is, okay, how can I own this? And what positive constructive actions can I take to now move forward and utilize my privilege to bring more benefit to others. And no one, you know, earlier said, should we just walk away from yoga if we're in a position of privilege? I really believe no one can tell anyone else what to do. Like, I think we have a new model now, not the guru shishya model where we're looking for a, a, a one teacher and that teacher tells us, but that's one way, that's one path. I don't think... That's as there's been a lot of problems with that model in, in many different ways, right? Which we can get into. But but the the real project of yoga is a project of self-autonomy. It's a project of sovereignty, of going in and, and saying, I am Ishwara, I am self-contained, I am do, choosing to do this because I have self-mastery. And so really, I can't tell you never do yoga again or only have Indians do, teach yoga. No, that's not a useful answer. What's a useful answer is, well, how can I use my sovereignty, my power to benefit and uplift myself and others? How can I begin to work as an ally or even an anti-racist or an accomplice, you know, in, in sharing the power of this practice. And no one can answer that really for anyone except for yourself. And I see my role really as an educator, like to ask questions, to get people to think critically. But I hope that no one takes something I say and is like, well, because Susanna said this, don't do this or do this, or I'm never going to teach yoga. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm Actually, yoga is here for all of us. It didn't come to any one person. It came through. And I believe that it is here to bring uplift and unity to all. And we each have different ways of expressing that and translating that. Yeah. And I think also maybe that is why it's easy to get stuck in those yes or no kind of questions. Like (laughs) when I was taking questions for this episode, for instance, majority of questions are, should I say namaste at the end of class or should I not? Is it, why is it not okay to wear a bindi? Can I have statues of deities at my studio? It's like, yes, no. Can someone just write me a little protocol? I want to be a good white person and follow the rules and do it right. And that's also how I, how I personally started with those things because they're kind of manageable. I can look around my space, my practice space, my studio, the tools, the things that I use for practice and really get present with and is there awareness around how I am using this tool? Mm. That was, I think, the first 
big piece for me. Looking around at our boutique that we had at the studio, the things we are selling here, is there awareness around why those things are here? What are, their, what are they for? What's the cultural history of the use of this tool? And there were so many areas where, no, there was no awareness. It was just something mm -hmm. that came along or something that I thought, this is what I've seen in other studios. It should be here. Or my teacher used to use this thing for this practice or at an altar. But then when I sat with, why do we have the statues of the deities placed here and here? There was no awareness. You know, it was something mm -hmm. that just kind of happened unconsciously in a way. And in those areas, it was really easy to go, oh, okay, there's not enough awareness here. Can I either create it? Can I learn? Can I arrive at a place of integrity here that really feels inside of myself? Yes, this makes sense to me. This to me honors the practice or no. And in the areas where it was a no or it felt like a stretch, it was really easy to, to stop or to shift mm. or to... For instance, an example of that, and because I, I got asked this question a lot, we used to have statues of the deities. We used to have, we had Kali was like our main mm -hmm. <laughs> altar, our altar piece in the studio. And then when I learned that, you know, showing your feet to the deity is not culturally in that, in, in, in the history of, 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 of the real, the real religion that we are borrowing this actual, you know, goddess from is not respectful, but we all go into Shavasana and our heads are in the back and our feet are facing forward. And then I had to sit with, okay, can I have a session with every teacher that comes in and really talk about this? And we turn the studio around and we, we make sure every visiting teacher knows that when you do, you know, it became like a whole logistical thing and to just go, Hey, maybe Kali doesn't have to be right here. You know, maybe there's some simple shift that I can make in terms of the studio layout. And that actually became in that instance, the, the easy solution to that complex thing was that I don't have to engage in all the things that actually don't belong to me. I don't have to take everything because I had teachers who had everything this way. And that I think sort of is the beginning of how can I look inside and go, okay, my teachers did this, or I saw this online or, you know, whatever it is that we're that we're using or appreciating versus appropriating can I look inside and really get the answer there versus going to Susana's website looking for the checklist yes no yes no yes no and have it's you funny had the, yeah, yeah I get this a lot and and I do have a checklist right because yeah. because because I think it's it's like it's like yoga in a way. It's a lifelong practice, cultural connection, learning how to connect with cultures from the inside out. For some people, you know, you might take it as an anti-racist journey or, or a journey of unlearning, you know, racism. And those things, like it takes time and it's evolving. And, you know, also for people listening who are like, so frustrated and so confused, like, just tell me what to do. I want to do the right thing. Like I realized in a way it's important to meet people where they're at and then invite them in to a deeper inquiry or, or more inquiry step by step by step by step. And so I think that that for me and for folks listening is really around ahimsa as harm reduction, ahimsa non-harm as much as we possibly can, you know, like you did that inventory with your studio is how can I reduce harm? And as you're reducing harm, the very first step might be, well, looking around and, and not taking or using things that aren't yours, that you don't have a relationship with, that you don't really even understand. But you know what can come of that? And this is why it's complex is it's nuanced because then 
Other people might say, well, you've totally sterilized, right? Cultural appropriation can happen. It has these, for folks listening, I have a pen in my hand and I'm touching both me unclick the pen, <laughs> touching both sides of it. So cultural appropriation has these two poles. On one side, there's sterilization, which is removing all the cultural elements from a practice to make it kind of more, quote unquote, palatable to a white or dominant audience. And on the other side is glamorization, which is what you were describing initially, like what led you to the critique of being a cultural appropriate, you know, appropriating is like just attach, oh, this beautiful goddess and I'm going to put, you know, wear a bindi and have like all the, all the show of the culture without any of the actual kind of meat or maybe like vegan meat, <laughs> the depth, the heart of, of it. But also it's like my friend Asha Frost says, you can't have like part of what the problem with glamorization is folks who take on like say the bindi who have all the benefit and the beauty of the bindi but they don't have what I had, which is being called dot head, you know, and like had like I had fruit and other things and rocks even thrown at me after leaving Apuja when I was a child because of wearing a bindi and then other kids seeing that and thinking I was different and other. Right. So it's like if you're going to take the beauty, well, join us in the struggle that comes from actually being a part of a culture that is discriminated against because of just being different, you know, different than the, different than the norm. And so I bring up sterilization and glamorization because as you go deeper and learn more, you might learn that you don't want to totally remove all the cultural elements. And one concrete thing I can say to everyone is when you're reducing harm, it's, it's still really helpful to acknowledge where the practice has come from. And I think of that as a spiritual lineage acknowledgement, like to say, I'm going to share some yoga with you. This, this is a practice that comes from India and has been practiced for thousands of years. And so I'll give you a really concrete example of this, which is anudom vilom or alternate nostril breathing. That type of breathing is incredibly effective at reducing stress, re reducing anxiety. And then recently, I think it was Scientific American renamed it cardiac coherence breathing. <laughs> and that's great, you know, and they saw all these benefits, like reduces blood pressure, you know, is good for diabetes and heart disease patients. Wonderful. Really glad that, <laughs> that it does that. But it's in the Upanishads. You know, it's written about in the Vedas, like thousands of years ago. And so all they had to do to not be appropriating is say, this is a breathing practice that comes from the Vedas in India, and we're going to share it as, or, you know, we're describing it as cardiac coherence breathing, and here's how you do it. And they didn't do that. And so in that case, it becomes appropriation because it's erasing, you know, this whole system. It's a codified, organized system of of practices that may actually, for some people, when they encounter it, may they may go further and receive other benefits. So we kind of have to watch those poles of sterilizing and glamorizing and come to, you know, I think of in yoga asana, sometimes I'm like propping in Tadasana, rounding and lifting my shoulders up. Sometimes I'm caving, but I have to go back and forth a bit to find my own personal solid center, not anyone else's, but my own center of values. And it may take folks 
a little time to go through like, oh, I overcompensated here and oh, I'm taking this out here. And that's okay, like to go through that process. You don't have to be perfect at it. Mm-hmm. But the the request is to commit to trying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I, this is such a, and I know this personally because I, I I sit with this every day it is not an easy thing no. and I wish I wish there was that checklist check 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 and that everyone is justice for all you know because we all want to get to that place of course of oneness and you know we're all here together and I think where we or where the yoga world misses it a lot is that we're not there yet so yeah. uh, you know hopefully we will and we we can arrive at that place eventually but until we are there acknowledging or at least opening our eyes to there is harm involved in this process and I impact other people by how I either pass this practice on or how I engage with this practice that isn't inherently mine and grieving you know like taking a moment for folks listening like if you're like wow I didn't get the full expanse of the practice and I know there's more taking a moment it's okay to grieve that for yourself and for the practice and for the people who may have been harmed by by that omission. It's like, take a moment, take whatever amount of time you need and grieve it, and then seek out the depth of the teachings. Seek out, you know, the full eightfold path and, and all that there is that yoga has to offer. And I think that moment or time to, to grieve and then deepen is sometimes what stops us because we're like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But no, it's it's sad. And, and mm-hmm. that's part of it. And then we get to deepen. And through deepening, we benefit ourselves as well, as well as others and, and communities and the future of what yoga can be for everyone. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Do you have any inkling as to... I was just contemplating this today for so many white folks, just like me out there who the moment I began down my healing journey, which involved yoga in in such a huge way, it it was, I think, the first time in my life that I felt spiritually linked really to anything, you know, Mm -hmm. and to have a practice that was, oh my God, I get to roll out my mat. There's a sacredness to that, that I have a tool that I can use. And then came, you know, the mala beads. And then I have my Tibetan bells over here. And I have a, you know, and I start to accumulate these tools from different kinds of practices from different parts of the world. But none of them actually ever stemmed from my own culture. If I look back at my own, my own lineage and where I come from, do you have any inkling as to why why we're missing that? Like what happened to those, to those things? 
you know? Mm. Yes. So <laughs> maybe this Colin, is the, the reverse me asking you, cause <laughs> I'm sitting here as the, as the white person wondering, but it really feels that way that, that, because of course they are there. Did we all just in all the harm that took place along the way, did they all just get lost and now we have to borrow from everybody else? Or what do you think? I think that's a big piece of it, right? And that's the harm of white supremacy that is the hidden harm sometimes is that white people think, you know, or people in a position of power think they're benefiting, but they're actually losing out as well. And part of that is it's sort of this like deal with the devil or whatever, like you give up your, your culture, your roots, your, you know, and this happened, like I can even think the Roman empire, right? Like this has happened before, like when indigenous or earth-based practitioners, pagans, you know, whatever the different names of those different communities were in Europe and elsewhere, they converted they or they were forced to convert and to kind of normalize and become a part of a dominant religion or culture or practice. And so it's not new. And some of the harm that's being perpetrated now with white supremacy is probably coming from that loss of culture. Because, you know, again, yoga is inherently about sovereignty. But when someone is taking and stealing from another culture, there it's hard to get to true sovereignty. And so what the invitation is, is actually creativity. And I think you, you touched on it. It's like, well, what in my own culture, in my own practice, what in my own ancestry can I lean back to? What can I learn about? What can I um, connect to? And for many cultures, it's actually all the same in a way. It's, it's In Indian culture, it's Prithvi, earth. It's Surya, the sun. It's Vayu, the wind. You know, there's Jal, water. There are all these natural elements that early yoga practitioners were connecting to, working on harmonizing within and without. And when we look back, you know, I think of like, because I've researched a little bit about Britain in, in England and France, pagan practitioners, they were doing the same thing with the ley lines and with, you know, looking at Stonehenge and what Stonehenge was was about is, and we don't always have a lot of information because the thing about colonization is it erases these stories that were often orally told, not necessarily written down. But these are beautiful inquiries to go into. And to me, it's very exciting to think of a world where we're grounded in who we are and who we came from. We're reaching back to our own ancestral roots and we're connecting in a respectful way and an honoring and loving way to one another's different cultures. So I'm not saying don't do something that doesn't come from your culture, but tune into where you're from and what's available there and ask questions, right? Ask the elders, do some research, explore, and then bring your creativity alive. Because cultural appropriation really is a result of a lack of creativity and a lack of, of that turning into ancestral connections. And so it's a cultural appreciation is an opportunity for going deep, connecting with self, with our ancestors and our, our root practices, and then sharing and connecting with one another. Hmm. Hmm. And yeah. then it's, then it's exciting instead of I'm going to yeah. lose all of these things 
yeah. you know, less than I have to remove all of this or quit all of this is I get an opportunity to anchor deeper into the history of this and actually for it to settle on a different level deep inside while also leaning back into, into my own because there is something really sacred about that that I think we miss out on when we just, we just take what's available right there. You know, there's two yeah. sides to, to it where it's benefits in the end for everyone. And can I give a specific example of this? Yes, Just please. I think it might help people. It's like around yoga specifically, which comes from India and South Asians, you can ask yourself, who are you learning from? Like, who are you following and interacting with online? Who follows you? If you teach, who's there? What does your marketing look like or your actual audience look like? And then who might be missing and how is cultural appropriation a part of that? And then, you know, in terms of actions that you can take to reconnect and uplift is support, collaborate with, learn from many different students and teachers, bring in, invite in South Asian teachers and practitioners. And you can do that by building relationships with people, by reaching out, supporting, you know, connecting, talking to people, taking time to do like a heart and gut check. Like, how does it feel? There's a difference in a space when it feels like truly inclusive rather than tokenizing and continue to consider who might be left out and then make kind of accommodations for bringing people in. So offer different ways of learning and teaching and practice or seek out different ways of learning and teaching and practice and look for teachers who might bring in different aspects of yoga, mantra, mudra, yoga philosophy, and explore that. So it can be, it can be a lot of fun. And that, that's just one concrete way. I wish I wish we had another hour. I know we are we are running out of time in a little bit, but this is not the last time you're on the show for sure. You have a book coming out. I don't want I don't want this podcast to to be over before we touch on that. Embrace yoga's roots. How does it feel? It's so exciting. It's like yeah, that article whew, exploded into and turned into a, a book, and I'm thrilled. Yeah. It's like almost having a new baby out into the world. I know it's out. It's out mid-November. So everyone listening, absolutely go grab your copy, Embrace Yoga's Roots. We'll link to it in the description of the show. For everyone, you know, Susanna, I like to end my shows just, you, and you did touch on that just now, but for everyone listening, if there's something that we can do to be of service to you today, mm. what would that be? Mm, that's so beautiful. I feel like very moved by that question and, you know, deepening in your exploration and your practice of yoga would be the most, the most supportive thing for me. My life's work is around expanding our understanding of what yoga is. And so like with the book, I felt like it was a workbook really for people to explore and come back to and dog year, you know, and, and the practice is that way. Like just keep coming back to the mat, keep coming back to this exploration of how can I appreciate and not appropriate yoga. And that, that would be wonderful. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again and for all the 
important work you do in this world. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thanks to Susanna Barkataki for joining me again. You can find Susanna on Instagram at Susanna Barkataki or at susannabarkataki.com. Don't forget to grab her new book out today, Embrace Yoga's Roots at embraceyogasrootsbook.com. If you enjoy the show, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of them at yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your shows. Of course, don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thank you so much to everyone at Cadence 13 for their production work. I'll see you next week.